MBAA's also got a career fair this year, so we'll probably have something talking about that there too. Or you can look for me, I'll be there. Right. Uh, so the, the essentials course scholarships will be at the conference. Now I will say this, and I'll say it on your podcast right now. If you find me at base and you want to sign up for that FA dispatcher course, I will give you a discount on the FA dispatcher Ooh, course. All right, listen up. Okay, come find Gary and find Gary at base. Hello, and welcome to the Business Aviation Collective podcast. We are sponsored by LD Aviation. My name is Lindsay, and today we have the esteemed Gary Martin with us. He has been in the aviation industry for many years and with Universal for, gosh, I think it's over 18 years. He currently is uh, the training program manager. And I bet a lot of the listeners on here have taken a course from Gary. So hi, Gary. Oh, hi, Lindsay. Uh, Great to be with you today. Wow. Thank you for coming. I have, like many people probably listening, I've taken your classes before, which are very engaging and very informational as well. But before we kind of talk about your classes and what you teach in them, I want to back up and I'm always interested in how people got into aviation. Is that something you loved from when you were little or how, how did you get interested? It, yeah, it's something I've loved since I, since I was born because my dad was in the Air Force. Ah, so all right. I grew up on airports. <laughs> cool. And then after uh, high school, graduating high school, what did I do? I joined the Air Force. <laughs> okay. Were you flying or what part of the Air Force were you in? Oh, so one uh, as I got into uh, junior high and high school and all that, I, I really liked math and science. So I had a passion for weather. Okay. So when I joined the Air Force, I was a meteorologist. Wasn't a flight crew member by any means, but I did all the crew briefings. Yeah, an essential part. I mean, weather, of course, is something that we all deal with on a daily basis. Like I said, essential for getting these missions completed. Can you walk us through what are the requirements? Like, how do you learn to be a meteorologist? Is there a test? Is it classes? The, yeah. the two main pathways to becoming a meteorologist are either through college. Okay. And there's many you can go through, and there's different types of degrees in meteorology. There's uh, the journalism type where you're going to, you know, maybe you have a path to be on uh, TV. Ah, uh, yeah. All right. There's the aviation path, of course, and there's some great aviation schools to get a um, meteorology degree or aviation degree in, in weather. And um, then, of course, you just have your more scientific. It depends how far you want to go in weather, right, as far as the education side. So that's okay. kind of the, the college school path, so to speak. Uh, the other main path is the uh, military Okay. Uh, you know, for example, you join the Air Force. It's uh, one of the more lengthy schools in the military for people mm-hmm. to go through for obvious reasons, right? Sure. Um, and uh, once you complete your training in the military or the Air Force, and then, of course, you're stationed at a base and you're going to be reefing uh, the air crews and, and so forth, e- experience is key. So what you'll find is if you're leaving the military, a lot of organizations tend to substitute three to five years of experience for the full degree in weather. Okay. So that's your, that's your two paths, either through a college or through the military. Interesting. Okay. Sounds good. So I see like on your background here, it looks like you have, you have both. You have military experience, but you also have the college of Air Force. Or is that kind of the same thing? 
Well, they 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 are two different things, but I was able to take what I had. Well, I started in the Air Force with my meteorology training, mm-hmm. and on military bases, especially the Air Force Embry Riddle is uh, embedded on all the campuses. Sure. And I was able to take Embry Riddle classes and courses to complement what I had done in the military to complete a degree in aeronautics. On it. Okay. All right. So that's where you're saying if you, you do your some time in the Air Force and you can kind of transfer it over, kind of like another yes. college. Okay. I'm following you there too. Embry-Riddle. So Embry-Riddle, was that all online at that time or did you have to go to like the Daytona Beach section? It was, they call um, Embry-Riddle Worldwide. So it was a combination of classroom where I was at, mostly actually Houston at the time, huh. and and then a few online classes just uh, to help finish the degree up in a timely manner. <laughs> nice. All right. Very cool. All right. So you've gone through, you know, Air Force training. You've gone through um, Embry-Riddle training. Where did you go after that? Well, once I was got to Universal Weather and Aviation, I started as a meteorologist at, at Universal. And at the time, I did aviation weather and I did marine weather. Oh, right, because they have two sections. I sometimes True. forget we, about the marine well, side. Yeah, we well, we spun off the marine section many years ago. Ah, but okay. at the time, yeah, but back in the day, we had both. Because now, uh, you know, many years ago, we decided our focus right needed to be the aviation side. So that's sure. kind of where I stayed, of course, because aviation was my niche, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Which I liked very much. In as my career evolved, I got more involved into the flight planning side. Okay. Uh, I wasn't a full-blown official flight planner, but I got the knowledge of flight planning, so to speak, and co- was able to combine that with weather. And as all that is going in my career is evolving, Universal started an FAA aircraft dispatcher certification course. Nice. When they started that, they also needed someone that had a background in aviation weather because that's usually one of the more challenging parts for individuals in the courses. Sure, yeah. And and here I was. I'm like, oh, hey, I'll, I'll help out with that, right? So for my, my first exposure to an FAA dispatcher course was the weather side and helping out the, uh, the primary, the main instructor of the course. You know, he'd focus on the weight and balance and so forth, the uh, flight planning side. And I would help out with the regs and weather. Okay. And then, cool. as you can imagine, over time it evolved, it evolved as I got more and more involved with the other topics. Mm-hmm. And then the next thing I know, I'm doing the full-blown course. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really cool. I Have you really been with Universal? Is it 18 years? Oh, no, it's over 25 now. Over 25. Yeah. Now, boy, I was really under that. Okay, 25 <laughs> years. You said I've seen a lot of change and growth with Universal. Sure. I've had kind of two careers at Universal. I had the uh, the meteorology, the aviation, weather side, and so forth, operations. And then uh, about halfway through my, my time at Universal, I started transitioning over to training. Because as I got more into the training side, helping with the dispatcher course, I started doing in-house meteorology training and in-house flight planning training. And as I'm doing all this training, your, your self-development never stops. Your the education never ends. I started taking uh, instructional design courses, facilitating courses. And in most recent times, as you mentioned, things change and I've seen a lot of change. I started taking virtual training courses on how to develop and present virtual training 
how to develop e-learning courses, how to present mm -hmm. them. Uh, so the, the biggest change I would say is technology over the years. That's a great thing that you just brought up. I was going to ask, what did it, what did maybe um, meteorology look like 25 years ago when you were starting? Did you have, you had pilots, I'm guessing, calling up, which you probably still have. They still have people calling up, but. Oh, yeah, it was, you literally had a wall full of paper charts. Really? With weather okay. charts. Yep. Uh, yeah. Significant weather charts, radar charts, the upper level winds, uh, surface charts, rods, so many things. And you had a phone with a long cord. Okay. All right. <laughs> I'll date myself. And you I would brief that. the pilots. Yeah, they would. we would send faxes and we would brief on the phone. Okay. And of course, if, if you, you know, you envision how things have progressed over time as technology gets inserted. Next thing you know, um, fast forward to more current times, you now email the briefings. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there was that short period of Blackberries and trying to think of. Pro pilots or something, or the pilot. Palm pilot or something. Pilots, excuse me. Yeah. Pilots. Yeah. yeah, you would use palm pilots. You'd send information or you would load mailboxes online and they'd have to log into their computer and retrieve them. But now it's all, uh, they do, you don't send much mainly anymore. Uh, everything's on a computer. There's no wall with charts anymore. <laughs> so it used to be cool to give a tour of the weather area because there were all these neat charts hanging up and you'd see all this neat stuff. But now everything's on the computer. So you're like, well, I've just got a, a weather forecaster, a meteorologist sitting down on a laptop or a tower a computer with everything on, online. You know, admittedly, they'll have, you know, one, two or three monitors, which sure. would look cool. But yeah, everything's electronic nowadays. Interesting. Okay. Can I ask a question then? What about internationals? Was all of that radar and um, weather information available all over the world? Or did you have to use other means to get some of the international pieces? Uh, in the beginning, when I first got in, you could get international weather, especially say current weather odds, METARs, forecasts, the tech stuff. Okay. And you, for the most part, you could get charts or you, you would subscribe to a vendor or you'd create them yourselves. Like we had our own meteorologists that were, their only task was to create uh, surface charts or significant weather charts for the world. That's okay. what they did. Wow. The radar was probably the most challenging thing to get for some reason. Current okay. radar. Mm -hmm. um, again, with technology, technology has changed that. So sure. weather information is so accessible nowadays. But um, and there were areas that it was a little more challenging to get information. As you can imagine in certain countries. But again, nowadays it's not as much of an issue. Sure. Yeah, just the regular Joe can log in and probably find a radar just about anywhere sure. all over the world. I will tell you something interesting that's changed, uh, and be probably because of technology and because of the regulatory nature of our business of. Um, Business aviation, mm -hmm. and it's probably going on in the 121 world too. Our briefings were probably, I would say, 60, 70% domestic weather flight plan briefings when I first started. Okay. Whereas only maybe 30% international. Mm -hmm. But nowadays, I would say it's 90% international and 10% domestic because a lot of people can look up their own domestic stuff or sure. they can even very easily go on there and do a flight plan for a domestic leg. Yeah, but when you start sense. flying, yeah, right, it does. And and then when you start talking international operations, not only does the flight planning part become complicated, but the regulatory component of a flight is very I won't, challenging, right? There's a sure. lot of stress points, right? It, it It's very almost impossible to do it yourself. You're going to need someone that has the know or the knowledge base to, you know, guide you through it. 
Sure. Yep. There's yeah a lot more intricacies there for the flight planning and international stuff. You know, adding permit numbers to remarks sections, making sure that it's a Euro controlled route that's accepted, or in many in many other countries as well. So slots, right. you know, required yep. equipment on aircraft, all kinds of stuff. Sure. Ah, that's very interesting. Very interesting because you're right with all of the technology, like the four flights or the flightplan.com, all of that are inexpensive slash free tasks. Now, beforehand, you could call up and file a flight plan, not not just with Universal, but you could call up your local, actually, it was a 1-800 number, right? Right, yeah. I want to say I remember that many years ago when I was flying. Yeah, yeah, nowadays you just follow flight plans online. You just have to watch, see if the flight plan is rejected or something, and then that might require a call or a validation. Or, for example, if you ever have to rerun a flight plan or something, you need to ma- ensure the new flight plan is on file and not the old one. Things like that. Very true, right? Because you certainly don't want, you know, taxiing out, saying cleared as filed and and flying the wrong route. Right. Yep, that does make sense. Yep, very cool. Well, great. So that is kind of a difference between then and now. And over the years, what about training? Training when you started versus training now, I'm going to guess a lot of it was in-house, like you had to be there in person compared to now you have some online stuff. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it was literally when I first started, it's like, oh, here's your desk and here's a little book with about, you know, eight pages. You know, the F1 button does this, the F2 button does this, and (laughs) this is the fax machine and you hit nine to get, you know, things like that. And a lot of it was OJT in person, of course. Uh, mm-hmm. really you were shadowing or some, you were shadowing somebody uh, to show you how to uh, use the basic stuff you had at the time, and then of course uh, get used to the briefings. And uh, I coming, I was used to being on airports, just as I mentioned, I grew up on them. But I was on military airports. I could tell you all about the military all day long, but I couldn't tell you anything about business aviation. Mm-hmm. So there was a, a learning curve there. Uh, the type aircraft and their their the specs and the abilities of the aircraft and so forth and mm-hmm. dealing with civilian pilots. Uh, uh, was oh, but that's different. Yeah, but that's really different civilian versus military pilots. Yeah. And, you know, the military are more structured, of course, and, uh, and what, right. they, what they're doing. So it was all a learning curve for me. But, uh, n- yeah, fast forward to today, um, at least in our case, we have a very uh, structured training program that's actually weeks and weeks and weeks long, and much of it is online. You can do it remotely from you know, your at your house or wherever. Um, now we do bring some people in at some point for maybe a week or two, just because of some of the technical stuff, right? Because okay. if you think of the industry, it's really hard just to say or train from home and figure all this out when you start doing it. So it's kind of a. I'm sure there are some roles that can do it all from a remote location online, but I think a lot of the stuff in training nowadays is blended online and in person. Makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I love the whole online and and all of my team is remote, but at the same time, it's really good to be able to see them. Sometimes we'll meet at events and there is definitely a different interaction that goes on when you're face-to-face with somebody. Sure. Yeah. And I'm sure like uh, like us all, a lot of organizations uh, probably use uh, Teams or Zoom. We use Microsoft yeah. Teams. So we're, we're constantly having meetings, but it's not the same as actually meeting the people in person, right? In person. Yeah, you're right. Very true. Well, cool. So let's kind of go towards what you're teaching now. What classes are you teaching now? 
uh, aside from a lot of the internal training I'll do at Universal, the main two courses I, you know, I design and develop and present are the FAA Aircraft Dispatcher Certification course mm-hmm. and our Essentials um, in Schedule and Dispatch for Business Aviation. Awesome. Uh, okay. Uh, and that's a shorter two-day course that can be done in person, in presentation, or it can be done virtually. Okay. Tell us the difference between the two, like for those maybe who, who don't know the difference. What's the difference? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. When you think of the FAA dispatcher course, it's uh, required X number of hours, but it's regulated by the FAA. So you have to follow a certain, uh, certain guidelines and a path to that certification based on what the FAA approves. Okay. Most of the courses are 200 hours approximately, but in our case, we have a blended course. So it's online work followed by two weeks in Houston. So that can actually, that timeline is approved out through uh, up to a year because they understand people are working, right? But so you've got the, up to a year to do all the, the written kind of background, and mm-hmm. then you can, you just have to make sure you've done that two weeks within a year signing correct, up. Correct. Correct. So you, you do online work, which exposes you to topics in weather, um, in aviation. So you've got weather, weight and balance, flight planning, the regulations, uh, all the concepts that go with aviation. Okay. You do the, the online lessons, just build your general knowledge. Now, also online, you're going to have to study for the FA written test. Okay. Yep. And that's usually the most challenging for people. All right. Tell us more about that one. Like, oh. how many questions? I've- so I took it, I got my license many years ago, and I don't recall it, but so how many questions are on that test usually? A pro- oh, the actual test is approximately 80 questions. Okay. All That's right. the official test. Now, the question bank that the students have to study for that written test is 1,500, oh, 1,500 wow. questions. That's usually the challenge for most students. Okay. It's having to review so many questions. A, a lot of it is knowledge-based questions, so there's no trick or no problem to work. You just have to know. They're multiple-choice questions. Okay. So it, it may be regulatory, maybe weather, maybe weight and balance. That's most of the questions. Now, there are questions that do require some basic math and some questions that require some flight planning and weight and balance problems or graphs. Mm-hmm. That's usually the most challenging for students because... I'm sure anyone that's been through a course and is hearing this will agree that those graphs are hard to read. <laughs> yep, yep. And you I have agree. to go up the graph, to the right, to the left, down, and you always get the answer that's right in the middle. And you're <laughs> not sure whether you should which answer to pick. So that usually uh, takes the most time in these courses for students to get through. But once you've completed online work, passed the written, and then you come to Houston for two weeks, and that's the practical portion where all the concepts concepts are applied. Uh-huh. Okay. You apply the concepts for the dispatcher certification. You do what Gary tells you in that <laughs> course, and you'll be ready for the practical exam in front of an actual FA examiner. Gosh, that's so cool. I remember doing it, and I remember at that point there wasn't an online option. So we had six weeks, basically, of sitting butts in chair, watching our instructor go through. And so for those of you who don't know much about this certification, you, you do all the studying, you do an actual FAA written exam where you go to a different location, you have to sign, uh, usually you have to sign up for a time slot. You go in and you do your test, it'll spit out your answer. And if I'm not mistaken, Gary, you have to get 80% or above to pa- pass? 
uh, 70% with the FAA. 70%, okay. The prep for it though, all the mm-hmm. schools, our school will require 80%. So students have a little bit of buffer in there, yeah. a little room for, yeah. So, Smart. right. And they'll know right away whether they've passed or failed once they're done with that test. Okay. It'll spit out a, uh, here's what you got wrong or right. Yep. Okay. They'll, get a, they'll actually get a, uh, a printed out physical piece of paper, eight and a half by 11, it'll have their score on there. Uh, mostly, most people pass, we hope, fingers crossed. Uh, I, I would say maybe a, there's maybe a 10 or 20% failure rate on the first attempt for that written. But it's not the end of the world. You can retest. The dispatcher FAA written test only requires a sign-off by another certified dispatcher if you retest within 30 days. Okay. Not and upwards, bad. if you no, that's not bad at all as far as mm. uh, sign-offs for tests in aviation. If you wait till day 31 and beyond, you don't even need a sign-off to retake the test. Okay. So if you maybe don't pass the first time, you want to take it the next week, you make your appointment, you just need that sign-off. And it, it's only by just another certified dispatcher. Yes. So you're, okay. If you're in a school, you could just go to the instructor, uh, have them sign it off. But if it's easier, especially if you're doing online work and you don't want to have to send mail or FedEx back and forth test sheets, if you know someone and you want to admit to them that you didn't pass the <laughs> test and they're certified, you can just have them sign it. And a lot of people do that. Sure. Or they'll have someone that they know sign it. It's just, it's more convenient. Yeah. When you get your results sheet, it will give you the, the numbers of the codes for the questions you missed. And you can okay. literally Google those codes online and you can see what sections those questions were in. Okay, cool. Uh, and the reason that's important is you know which parts to go back and study. Sure, like maybe you weren't really strong in your weight and balance section and you go back and really study that hard or or perhaps regs or Correct. Yeah, that's exactly it. That test will will call out real quickly which areas you're strong in and which areas you're weak in. Okay, awesome. Okay, so now you've, you let's say we're doing the universal course. You've done your classes with universal, passed at 80%. You did your FAA, you passed at 70% or more. Now you're going to come to Houston and you're going to do your in-person work. What are you learning there? You'll be in Houston uh, for approximately two weeks, you know, Monday through Friday, Monday through Friday, and then you mm-hmm. take your practical exam. Now, what do we, eight to five each day, sometimes a little bit longer for our, our school meeting. You know, the, yes, we, the, we're on, on paper, we end up five, but if somebody needs help, I'm here till six or seven if needed to help people. I do it all the time. Well. Yeah. The ultimate goal is that certification for everybody and we're not going to lose anybody. So uh, a lot of it, people will be surprised. You can go online and look at all these cool pictures of schools where they show all these neat computers. But in the end, most of the schools, because the inspectors required, the FAA inspectors, that we do things manually. Okay. And what I mean by that is you're going to have a weather form. You write down the current weather. Now you do have a computer. You look that up on the computer. You look up the METAR for your departure, destination, airports, alternates. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same thing with the TAFs. You look okay. up PIREFs. You're looking up significant weather. You are doing flight plans. Oh, I have a question about the flight plans. So when I was going through it, it was using a 737 as the base aircraft like to, to practice on. Is that still correct? Yes, there, uh, there are a couple schools that may still use a 727, okay. but most of the schools have all switched to 737s now. Okay. 
Their series may vary. You know, some of the older models or newer models. In the end, the concepts are the same on okay. what's being taught. It's just the hardest thing is getting the performance information for the aircraft that you can use in the course. You would think it's easy to go online and get, but it's not. <laughs> okay, makes sense. At least sure. not nowadays, maybe years ago. Uh, yeah, because you're going to look at uh, weight and balance. You're going to have a weight and balance sheet you fill out. And going back to the flight planning, the cool part I like is we use something called an E6B, electronic E6Bs nowadays. Oh my gosh, nowadays. yes I do. <laughs> and actually the regulations so, will allow you to use that For those of you who are listening, I'll put a link to what an E6B exam. looks like. Really? So you can okay. see. Yeah. Oh great. However, yeah, I'll tell you what sure, our examiners say. <laughs> our examiners, examiners right, All the examiners have, love that well, thing. Yeah. The examiners will say, yes, you can use that electronic E6B on there, but I'm also allowed to ask you to show me how you do the calculation on the old school E6B flight computer. Okay. And so just so do it, but just in case. Yeah, you still need to know the the old one. He's gonna he or she will want to see the. It's how we do our uh, true airspeeds to knots. How we do our courses, we account for the winds, this wind speed and wind direction. We're doing a lot of conversions, time and distance, fuel, all on that E6B. That's how we do all our flight planning calculations. I have no idea how that E6B was designed many years ago, but it's an amazing manual tool to do all your flight planning it sure is and you twist one way and this road this you know circle goes this way and the other circle goes the other way it's been a long time since i even thought about that <laughs> that's so funny they uh and then we have a uh, we do the flight plan of course and then at the end we fill out a dispatch release and just so people become more familiar or are aware of what a practical exam entails it's, they're, they're not as long as they used to be, Lindsay. They, it, it's, it's shortened a little bit. Okay. Uh, they're, they're four to six hours long. Yeah. And there you go. Right. Well, I remember that being a long day. You know, as, as a student, you'll come in in the morning and you'll start your practical at eight or nine. And the next thing you know, it's two o'clock. And you're like, what happened to the day? Where did it go? Yeah. Half of the practical exam is completing all those forms. The examiner will give you a, a canned package of weather and flight planning and weight and balance information. And you'll have to fill out all those forms, the weather, the weight and balance, the flight planning, the dispatch release, a route uh, and the flight plan and so forth. And you'll have to discuss all that information after you fill out all those forms. And those, the goal is to complete the forms in two hours. Okay. Now to give you an idea of how much you're doing, because the courses are all high volume, a high volume of information is the first day you fill out those forms, it'll take you an entire day. It'll take you eight hours. Okay. Yeah. And as you go through the two weeks, the goal is to get down to two hours. Wow. Okay. And while, and it's, it's done. People do it all the time. They get down to that two hours. Now, do, does the examiner come in with an egg timer and say, stop at two hours? Uh, not really. Then what they'll do is they'll see where you are at two hours. And if you're within, you know, 15, 20 minutes or finishing, they're going to let you finish. Okay. Now, if they come in at two hours and check on you and you're only on the first sheet of paper or first form, that's a different discussion. Yes. Now, in addition to having, say, two hours to fill out the forms, then you've got another hour of explaining all the information and numbers you've put on that dispatch release. You're going to have an encoded route written down. You're going to have an in route time on the sheet. You're going to have fuel on board, minimum fuel required. You have the weather, have all this information done. And just so everybody understands, the dispatch release is like the output on your computer. 
It's mm-hmm. the final result or culmination of all the work you've done in the background. As soon as that examiner looks at that dispatch release, they know right away that your numbers are right or wrong. And there's some latitude. So they know exactly where to home in on. But what they're looking for is you to tell them that. So you're going to have to show them your flight plan, your weather, how you did the information. You're not going to have to go through every field. But they're going to have to see, show me how you calculated your ground speed. Mm -hmm. Show, Show them how you did a segment fuel. How did you do segment time? all on that A6B. And a lot of times they're looking at those in, that information and they already know the information is incorrect. Sure. And yep. the key to a practical exam, just so everybody knows, it's possible to get some information wrong and still pass that practical. Okay. What the examiner is looking for is when you show the person, when you show that examiner how you've done that work and you realize you've done it incorrectly, mm-hmm. you need to tell the examiner because they already know. Okay. What they're looking for is understanding. Okay. And once you realize you've done something wrong and you understand that and you let the examiner know that, that will help and that'll go a long ways. Okay. Good to know. All right. So So, how long is that part of it, the explanation? Did you say an hour? About an hour. It can vary depending on the examiner. Now you've got, okay, that's two hours to complete the forms, an hour to talk about them. What else are you going to talk about? Mm-hmm. Well, the examiner, when you're in the courses, depending on the format of the course, but ours, your homework one night's going to be regulatory questions. Another night, you're going to have aircraft systems questions for homework. Another night, it's going to be airway charts. Uh, another night, it's going to be weather. And on that other couple hours of the exam, you're going to be, the examiner is going to pull out a high altitude in route flight planning chart okay. and start having you explain the symbols. And the meaning yeah. of those symbols on that chart. Do you have to drill really far? No, but again, it's a function of a high volume of information and being able to talk about what that piece of information is. But for example, the examiner might even pull out a low altitude in route chart and you, he might ask you, what's the altitude top of this chart? What is the altitude? You know, okay, it's below 18,000 feet MSL to the surface, something like that. Or the high altitude in route chart as 18,000 feet MSL to 45,000 feet, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, what, what are those, what are Q routes? What are you, things like that? You saw those are RNAV, right? Yeah. <laughs> Different things like that. Now, he might not just ask them like that. It'll be more of a conversation. Okay. Sometimes you won't even realize you're answering questions. He's kind of pulling concepts together and having you apply them to what you were doing. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that I really like that information. Now, I don't know if I could pass it anymore with all of the, because uh, I don't use it, but I thought it was fascinating to be able to really pull out those, those charts. So, I mean, you're actually looking at real charts and you get to look exactly at what like um, the pilots are looking at. You do. Our, our examiner loves the instrument approach procedures, the IAPs. Yeah. That just intimidates the students so much. And he'll, he'll ask you what the weather minimums are. What's the decision altitude or height? Uh, yeah. You know, one's the, where's your final approach fix? So when are you officially on your precision approach? When are you officially on the non-precision approach? So I'm throwing all these terms out there now, but if by the time you get to your end of your two weeks in Houston or your dispatcher course, and you're ready to take that practical, you'll know all that terminology. But that's kind of where all those two hours go, the rest sure. of the two. So now you're at five, but you easily could go to six. Okay. Because you've also got the systems questions. Oh, right. So, yeah. you know, what can you tell me about the air conditioning system on a seven, on the 737, say, 800 series? Mm-hmm. 
Uh, what about the, uh, let's say, pricing, you know? So sure. And, and how does that affect the rest of the system, flight plan, et cetera, MELs? Sure. And uh, good point. Uh, yeah, MELs, that's a great thing to mention. All the examiners will ask an MEL question. So what's an MEL? A minimum equipment list, right? You, yeah. That's where if something's inoperative, broken, say, on an aircraft, you pull out the MEL for that aircraft and you look up the part or the system and it gives you the criteria that allows you to still operate that aircraft or maybe you can't. Yep, yep. So, you know, for you, you can have limits to the altitude, right? Depending sure. on what's out on the aircraft or you might have to add additional fuel. Or certain weather. Maybe certain you weather. go into any weather. Correct. And one of the common ones examiners like to use is uh, an MEL that tells you that you cannot go into any known or forecasted icing conditions. Mm -hmm. So, of course, on the practical exam, they're going to throw icing into the weather. And then right. they're going to yeah. give you an MEL that says no icing. So, uh, now, if you realize that at the beginning of the flight, says if you, if you have an MEL that requires you to do something or can't do something, and you realize it at the beginning, and you say, well, I can't dispatch the aircraft, the examiner is just going to smile at you and go, that's okay, but I yes, I, I understand that, but you still need to fill out all these forms. <laughs> sure, yep. You just don't sign the dispatch release at the end. Okay, good point as well. Right. I I think that's really interesting, and I, I kind of want to tie this into a, another conversation I want to have. So for me, when we're talking about this stuff, I see certain, certain vocabulary words, certain things that I do in my business aviation scheduling that I use for my dispatch course. The MEL, I mean, that helps me I have an AOG, an airplane, then that I know the words that my pilots and maintenance is telling me. I, I recognize that that has to be working before I can uh, continue on my flight. That helps me. The weather on the IAPs that you were talking about, part of what we do on my team is to make sure that it, the airport is ready and usable when we take off. That helps me in those decisions. So I use some of some and off much of that knowledge that I learned many years ago in that certification in my day-to-day -day job now. But let's say, let's kind of look back. What if you decided you're like, I just don't want to do a full dispatch certification. I, maybe I don't have six weeks or uh, uh, something I'm not interested in doing. What else do you guys have? Yeah. So you could actually tie that to our essentials for scheduling and dispatchers and business aviation course. That's our two-day course. Mm -hmm. We do it a lot of times at the schedulers and dispatchers conference, but we also do it online virtually. Because you have a, a, a good point of bringing that up. Because on the FAA side, we're required to teach along the uh, 121 side. There is no certification from the FAA for business aviation, yeah. at least part 135, part um, 91, and so forth. That's mm -hmm. what... But the concepts all still apply. But say I'm in business aviation and I'm not sure about getting a full-blown FAA dispatcher uh, certificate, but how can I learn about business aviation? And that's where that other course comes in that I have is our, our two-day course, uh, Essentials for Scheduling Dispatch and Business Aviation course is not regulated in any way. In other words, we put in what we want to put into it. And a course being universal weather and aviation, it's a business aviation course. Sure. Yep. And our terminology, our scenarios, what we talk about all is aligned to the business aviation community. 
So if I'm a, a, an operator, just like you were talking about, or an individual, and I want to learn a lot more about the terminology the pilots are all throwing at me, right? Because mm-hmm. say I've been an administrative assistant for several years, and I've been helping the executive, so to speak, or the prin- principal packs or something do their schedule. And over time, I, and I see, I hear this from people a lot over the years, I'm slowly getting pulled into the aviation operations side. And the next thing I know, I'm a full-blown scheduler, but I'm like, I don't know what they're throwing at me half the time. I'm having yeah. to uh, call people up. I have to call Universal. Yep. Hey, what are they asking for here? <laughs> yeah, we see that as well a lot. Yeah, uh, The two-day course is actually perfect for that because the way it's formatted is it's a good course if you've been in the industry for a while, just as a refresher. Mm-hmm. It's a good course to enter if you're just starting up or fairly new or don't have too much experience. I find that having a blended audience of students that have different levels of experience goes really well in that course when I run it because the experienced people share their experiences and the challenges they've had in business aviation and the newer people are learning from that. And then the newer individuals bring up questions that the experienced people haven't thought of in years. And then you start talking about different scenarios on the business side. So it leads to some really good discussions. But that's the path I would start with because you you get is that two-day course, especially if you're just starting out in aviation, you may end up doing the dispatcher course eventually once you get more experience. Yep. And there is some overlap. Uh, again, the concepts are the same, but mm-hmm. the two-day course is all about the private slash business side of aviation, whereas the dispatcher course is is regulated by the FAA. Makes sense. Yeah, that totally makes sense. So between those two courses, what... What topic is your favorite? Oh, uh, I have to say weather because that's my background. <laughs> I'm a weather geek, so I just, uh, I love the weather. Even though I'm uh, I'm in a different career now, more of the instructional design and teaching the the development of the, the material and presenting it and all that good stuff. And to me, business aviation is so cool. But once you're a meteorologist, you never, you never forget it. So sure. <laughs> yeah. I think it's so helpful. I mean, we have a meteorologist on our team that he's just, he's awesome. He can tell, he can tell uh, our whole, I guess, group where to watch out for, where are the hot spots in the U.S. or even internationally if we're running internationally. So I love that experience. That was, I have to admit, never my forte in that section. But what you'll find too is um, in business or any aviation, it doesn't matter what you're in. Just could be the military, could be commercial, could be private. One of the showstoppers people have little control over is the weather. Mm-hmm. Now, when we talk about, especially in the two-day course, we can we have scenarios where, hey, we've got this challenge. It might be parking, it might be hangar, it might be permits, or it might be you forgot your passport, things like that. Those, to me, are easy to talk about because there's solutions to those, right? There's There's... There, you, you find a way. You can get sure. the mission accomplished, so to speak. However, when it comes to weather and the airports below weather minimums, you know that's a great scenario to bring up that I need to build in more because one, I like the weather, but two is <laughs> what you do. You're halfway across the pond and the airport shuts down because it's below weather minimums. And you know the UK, Northern Europe is infamous for IFR, but not just IFR, but low IFR, yep. especially in the winter time. What do you do? You go halfway across the pond and you realize, okay, now I can't go to my destination airport. What do I need to do if I divert? And that's yeah. another great discussion. I have Agreed. to divert. What What do I do now? Right? Uh-huh. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Because, and then if you back it up even further, 
you know, did you have those contingency plans in place prior? Did you talk about that prior to when you actually took off so that um, you're not talking about it as you're trying to cross the pond or something? Excellent point. Pre-planning, right? Mm -hmm. Pre-trip planning. How do you mitigate all the possible challenges that could come up ahead of time before they occur? Have a plan in place. That's the excellent point to bring up. Yep. Have it in place before you leave. So both of these courses are awesome. So um, I have taken your business essentials course before, or I guess it was maybe named something different because it's been a while, a few years since I took it last. But I also understand that Universal is very generous and they donate scholarships for, well, is it both courses or the essentials uh, one? It, it is both courses. I will mention on the essentials course, um, you because you touched on something just now, it may have been called something different in the past than it was. The course is not static. So okay. we talk about a lot of concepts and yes, we have some in, content in there that may look the same, but our discussion changes over time. It's a live course, especially when you're talking in the regulatory side, because the regulatory side changes almost daily, right? Sure. So when we do that course, we're not running the same course again and again and again. Format topics, yes, but what's presented and talked about will vary and does evolve over time. Just just to, That's I want to make sure I understand that. Yeah. So I would always recommend if you take the course and maybe every one to two years, depending on yeah. what your recurrent training requirements are, or yeah. if you just want to get stay current, mm -hmm. be the best way to stay, say that. Now, regard to scholarships, that's a great thing to bring up. For the FAA dispatcher course, we sponsor dis uh, scholarships through MBAA. Okay. And that's a great time to talk about that because they're if they haven't opened it up online yet, they're about to, right? Yes, they are. Yeah, I don't know if it's out yet, but yeah, you're right. Very soon, if not. Which brings me to a point, if you're not on social media, and I know you are because everybody is nowadays, <laughs> join the MBA Scudger Dispatcher Group and also be connected on LinkedIn because they are already posting about the scholarships coming up. So they're up for grabs and Universal sponsors several. We have what's called training scholarships where you just get a slot to the course. Mm -hmm. We have monetary scholarships where... You, your MBA has a fund they pull out and they give you X amount to go to a, uh, to a course. They're, I always like to say they're up for grabs. So they're, And the cycle is running, coming up right now. Now's the time to, to apply. Right. I really try and hit on that quite often when I can because if I'm not mistaken, oftentimes there are not, there's not a lot of competition. So put your name in the hat and and try because it's not a ton of work that you have to do. Maybe some uh, letters of recommendation and some applications, perhaps a little bit of writing. But overall, it's not a lot of work and there's a lot to be gained on the sure. back side. Uh, we, and then we do scholarships through WCA, Women in Corporate Aviation. Oh, yeah. And then Women in Aviation International, WAI. I'll get the acronym right. <laughs> yeah, right. They, we do the scholarships there, too. They have their scholarship window open. I'm not sure if it's still open, but Google those organizations and check. They, they'll be there. Or, if you you know, contact me. I'll give you my contact info at the end and here. I will mention something while we're talking about it because we are. Now, we have the essentials course. That's more of a scholarship that we're offering at the conferences right now. Okay. That'll probably change over time. But it's a good thing to bring up right now. So that's our, our two-day course for business aviation. We are going to offer a couple scholarships for that course at MBAA base in Vegas in October. Oh, really? Okay. I'm not sure. We'll have it at our booth for sure. 
MBAA's also got a career fair this year, so we'll probably have something talking about that there too. Or you can look for me; I'll be there. Right. Uh, so the the essentials course scholarships will be at the conference. Now I will say this, and I'll say it on your podcast right now: if you find me at base and you want to sign up for that FA dispatcher course, I will give you a discount on the FA dispatcher Ooh, course. All right, listen up. Okay, come find Gary and find Gary at base. And uh, I, I, you register for my dispatcher course, I will give you a discount. Nice. Okay. That's a great one. Okay. That's a wonderful option. I mean, discount anywhere is great. Additional training anywhere, um, anytime you can get it is also great. Scholarships are great. And you, alongside, you know, with the Universal, offer all of that. So right. Cool. Yeah. Now, uh, in regarding regarding schedules versus dispatchers, right? Yeah. If we can touch on that just for a minute, yeah. And and of course, in the commercial world, if you work for uh, a 121 operator, you have to have your uh, FA dispatcher certification, and mm-hmm. uh, they train you when you go to work for those airlines on the type of aircraft that they dispatch. Right? You get special training there. When it comes to the business aviation world or uh, private aviation, 91, 135, and beyond. Sketchers, dispatchers, you, you, the certification on the FA side isn't required. So right. it's an interchangeable term is what I'm saying. Scheduler and dispatcher, you're really doing the same duties. Right. Uh, does it hurt to have a dispatcher certification? No, because I'm going to say that because I have a course, right? Uh, it <laughs> does, you know, learning never ends. I've gone through several iterations in my career, meteorology, and then the finishing with Embry-Riddle on the aeronautics side, and then taking the instructional design and the facilitation courses and so forth. Mm-hmm. there's many ways to continue your education. So you can, you know, it doesn't hurt to get the dispatcher certification because I always tell people the flight ops, the more knowledgeable your flight ops, the more timely and efficient your decisions are. Yep. So you can have a more economical or safer flight environment operations uh, in theory, right? Because everyone, right. the communication is there. You learn a lot of terminology that you're going to get from dealing with those air crews. Yep. And on a kind of more maybe personal, selfish point is that oftentimes companies will pay more. If you get your certification, their, your salary might go up. Yeah, that's actually uh, pretty common. Another thing I like to tell people is if I'm looking at resumes to hire somebody and your resumes are basically the same, but one mm-hmm. of you has that dispatcher certification, working in HR, I can tell you that that dispatcher certification is the one that's most likely going to be picked or chosen. Sure. Pushed over the edge a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a differentiator. Yeah, I agree. It certainly was worth my effort when I did it many years ago. It's it's paid me back tenfold or more just in the fact that I could, you know, have a conversation with the pilots and know what they were talking about and respond back in their language, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it it's it's makes such a big difference, right? It sure does. OK, so one last question here for you, Gary. If you're uh, meeting somebody new or somebody's new that's listening to this podcast, what would you suggest them do to get into aviation or even more into aviation? Oh, more into aviation. I would look online. I would get into LinkedIn and I would look for the groups that are schedulers, dispatchers, or if you're interested, something beyond that could be, could be a pilot, right? Could be mechanics, right? Flight attendants. There's groups for them. LinkedIn. Facebook, get into those groups, get networked. Nice. Now, Good suggestion. If you're looking for that first job right up high school, mm-hmm. literally look for jobs at the airport. 
And yeah. on the private side, I would say, look at those FBOs. Mm-hmm. I, I talked to so many people that started at an FBO that had never been in aviation. Yes, I agree. And, yeah. Yep. And uh, over time, the next thing they know is they're meeting these corporate flight pilots or scheduled or they're meeting people in aviation mm-hmm. in different roles. And they find a little bit out about the role. And next thing they know, they're working for a flight ops, just, just the hangar next door or across the, the runway, right? That, yep. that is very common. I hear that story all the time. That's partly my story. Now, I did come in with aviation, so I knew that I wanted to be in aviation, but I didn't. I worked at, I went from airline to an FBO, and from there, I went over to Part 91, which is where I've been for 20-some years now. Now, another path that a lot of people don't think of this is kind of the logistics side, where you you could start for a universal weather and aviation, and you, you're kind of arranging the services or you're providing information. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people come to Universal. I did. I'll, I'll hang out here three to five years. I'll go somewhere else. And here I am 25 plus years later. Right. Uh, yeah. I love this place. We have a lot of, yeah, we have a lot of people that uh, come here and they stay. Right. We get yep. a lot of people that come here and they're just starting out in aviation and they learn a whole bunch really fast, especially yep. in obviously private business aviation side. And then they make the jump and they go work in a flight department somewhere. Well, and it sounds like we have you to thank for that a lot because it sounds like you also do a lot of the internal training. Oh, yeah. I'll do internal training. I help with especially the recurrent training for weather. I helped with the flight planning training that we're doing here. I even I even cross over to things that are outside of the aviation side. I help with our um, IT training or compliance training. So there's training never stops. Uh, our UA oh. offices, our universal aviation offices overseas, I help with their SMS training. Oh yeah. Okay. Cool. Because there's certifications with that too. That's that's important training. It is. It sure is. Well, Gary, that has been a great chat today because I really think that not everybody, many people don't know what actually entails the certification process for a dispatcher. Also great to know that maybe that's not where you start. Maybe you start with the essentials course, or maybe you started an FBO and learned some of that, and then you work your way up into that certification if you want. So what if somebody had questions, more questions for you? How would they find you? I would say the three main ways to find me, LinkedIn. Okay. My email, garym at univ-wea.com. Or if you're at the conferences, go to Universal Weather and Aviation's booth and say, where's Gary? And you can find me there. That's awesome. Well, Gary, I will be at base and probably at S&D as well. So I'll definitely catch up with you there. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I can't wait to hear of all the people who stopped by your booth to get a discount for that certification class. Oh, yeah. Definitely look for me in in Vegas. and I look forward to seeing you there, Lindsay. Wonderful. Thanks again, Gary. for listening. Please stay tuned for more episodes and check out our website for up and coming podcasts. This has been a production of the Business Aviation Collective sponsored by LD Aviation.